You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here today. You got your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 3. Um, as you're turning there, just by kind of a show of hands real quick, how many of you guys are planning on coming this Friday? Just so I can kind of see. All right, good. Lots of you guys. Cool. It's going to be a great Great, uh, I think, tool for us as a church to have this, to give to people in our community, and, and uh, also just to, to, to worship together. It's going to be a lot of fun, too. It's going to be crowded, so I would say get here early, and um, we're going to have a great, great night. Um, we're in a series entitled The Gospel of John, and so we've uh, started in chapter 1, and we're just working verse by verse through uh, the Gospel of John. And so if you're new, uh, you're not too far behind, but we're glad that you're here. And last week we, uh, we, we did uh, verses 16 to 21, and today we're going to start in verse 22 in just a minute. Uh, but before, you, um, uh, before we read that, I just want to ask a question. How many of you guys have ever been envious or jealous of another person? Anybody ever been? Okay, good. I was hope, hoping you guys were with me on this. I have, to myself, struggled with that uh, from time to time, more often than not. Uh, I remember one of the biggest things growing up for me uh, was when we lived in, in Cincinnati, Ohio, right outside of Cincinnati. And so my dad took a church here in Knoxville, um, and so we moved. I was in sixth grade. It was a big deal for me. Left all my friends and all that deal and moved and, and started a new school. And um, basketball was my life pretty much at that point. And so uh, playing sports and playing basketball in particular was, was just something that I did constantly. And so when it came time to try out for the basketball team, I was there. Now at our middle school in Knoxville, it was 6th and 7th and 8th graders all on one team. So when I didn't make it my 6th grade year, it wasn't too big of a shocker at that point. I wasn't very tall back then. I was kind of a late grower anyway. Uh, but when 7th grade year rolled around, I expected to be on the team. And so I had worked and practiced and played and my dad had coached me in, in rec league. And so I was ready to go. And 7th grade year came around and uh, they posted the team uh, the next day after tryouts. And my name was not on the list again. I was I was broken hearted. I was I was devastated, and so I was determined that next year was my year. Eighth grade year was my year. Uh, one of my best friends used to play uh, in the driveway with me all the time. We would we would go to the gym a lot, so we played against each other a lot. We went to uh, different camps together, and so we were both getting better. And so we knew our eighth grade year we were going to make the team, and it was going to be all about us, and it was going we were going to rule the school and all that cool stuff. And so um, we 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 come to the tryout, you go home, and the next day when you go to school, they post on the, the locker room door of the team. Now, this is not politically correct anymore. I don't think you can get away with it. It's just child abuse, so uh, we're too sensitive today. Um, but that's how they did it back then. And so when I strolled in that day to see my name on the list, to my dismay, my name was not on the list yet again. I did not make it. I was crushed. To make matters worse, my best friend did make the team. Oh my goodness, I was so mad. I was so jealous. I, not only did I not want him on the team, I didn't want him to do well. I, I'm a great friend, by the way. You know, it's, oh, I was so jealous. I remember being so mad and upset, and, and I had to go to school that day, and for the rest of the, uh, of the week, I was just, you know, just completely couldn't even hardly look at him, let alone talk to him. And um, man, I struggle with jealousy and envy all throughout my life. Now, the good side of that is my dad was the coach and um, probably a, a better coach than the, the guy that was at the school anyway, and it worked out for my benefit. Thank you very much. So um, it's just a story if any of your kids are not making the team, uh, keep working. And so 
So I struggle with it. Now, when we look at our text this morning, John the Baptist is tempted to struggle with jealousy and envy as well. Now, if, if, if you're honest, you could probably think of some people in your life, whether at work or at, you know, friendships that you have, you look at what people have, you look at their career, you look at what they're doing, maybe their, you know, material possessions, and you're, you're tempted to kind of say, man, you know, I wish I had what they had or what, what they're doing gets more credit than, than what I'm doing and what I get. And so we're going to see some pretty cool things today in our text. And so if you've got your Bibles, let's look at verse 22 where it says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them, and he was baptizing. John also was baptizing, John the Baptist, he's back on the scene, at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. And so, real quickly, here's what's happening. Jesus finishes the conversation with Nicodemus. And then they go into the countryside. And so out of the city, into the countryside, they start baptizing people. And, and, and people start to follow Jesus. And people start coming to him to be baptized. And so John is, is also baptizing as well in the countryside. And it's interesting here that it says um, in verse uh, 23 that he was baptizing because water was plentiful there. Now, if you're going to sprinkle somebody with water, you don't need a plentiful amount of water, do you? But if you're going to baptize somebody, you're going to need um, uh, plenty of water because the Greek word for baptism is the word baptizo, which simply means to sink, to submerge, to dunk. And so we understand baptism to be an outward expression of the inward faith that we have in Christ. And that's why we get dunked. That's why we're submerged. It's a symbol of me dying to Christ um, and dying to myself and coming up out of the water is a symbol of my new birth and is a symbol of Christ uh, resurrecting from the grave. And so there's a lot of symbolism in that. And the point is... You go under the water. And so there's plenty of water to do that. If you've never been baptized on November 23rd, our baptism service is going to be that day. It's going to be an awesome day. I would love for you guys to consider that if you've never done that. Go to foothillschurch.com slash baptism to get started. It's going to be an awesome day. Let's continue. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Underline that phrase. All are going to him. You see, what's happening here is that John the Baptist, he has these disciples, these guys that are following him, and and as they're baptizing and leading people in, in the countryside, now Jesus comes on the scene, and now Jesus has followers Jesus is baptizing people, and there's an argument that that erupts over purification, and it somehow leads to Jesus. And so as they point to Jesus, the disciples of John are saying, look, look, John, you used to be the man. Like everybody used to come to you and, and, and come to you for baptism. They used to come to you to get taught about God. You used to be like the leader of this movement, and now everyone is going to Jesus. What's happening? They're becoming envious. They're becoming jealous. They're becoming, you know, uh, worried that our ministry is no longer as significant as that guy's ministry. And so they're jealous and they're envious and they're worried and they're concerned about what they don't have and what somebody else has and gets 
to do. Now we can relate to this. As a a Christian or even a non-Christian, we struggle with envy. Somebody at work gets the promotion. And if it wasn't for you, they couldn't even do their job. But they got the promotion and you didn't. Can you believe that? And envy sets in. Jealousy sets in. Can you believe that she makes more money than me? I can't believe that. You know, I am the one who got her the job. And envy sets in. We look at other, other people and their kids, and I wish my kid was as smart as that kid, and I wish my kid was as athletic as that kid, and, and, and I wish they could do what they were doing, and, and we see what they're driving and what kind of house, and we on and on and on, the material possessions get into our mind, and we can be uh, easily tempted and, and fall to this temptation to become envious and jealous of what other people have. And this is what the disciples of John are experiencing in their life right now. They are worried. They are concerned that they aren't that the in ministry any longer. They aren't the ones who are drawing the crowd anymore. Everybody is going there and not here any longer. I wish this wasn't the case in ministry, but, but this happens in ministry too. Our small group is growing, but their small group is, isn't growing. And why isn't our small group growing? And, 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 and why is my ministry not as important? Or, or, or why don't they talk about my ministry as much as, as they talk about that ministry? Or you know, even as pastors, this church is growing, that church is growing. Why isn't our church bigger you know, it sets in in every level of ministry and life, no matter where you are, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are this morning, you're tempted to be jealous and envious about what other people get to experience and what other people have instead of allowing yourself to understand what Christ is doing in your life. I want you to, if you've got your Bibles, flip over to Philippians chapter 4. It's going to be on the screen so you can just listen. But this is a guy by the name of Paul who wrote this letter from jail. So he's in prison writing a letter to a church in a city called Philippi. That's why we get the name uh, Philippians. And so as he's writing from jail, he's talking about the gifts that they're going to give to him and how he's thankful and he doesn't actually need them. And then he dives into uh, this explanation in verse 11 that I think is very relevant for us today. Verse 11 says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, you're probably familiar with verse 13 because you've seen it on um, NFL athletes and college athletes and maybe on tennis shoes as people go out to play sports or you know, basketball or whatever, because we like to rip this verse out of its context, you know, get a tattoo or you know, put it on our eyeliner and go out and say, praise God, we're going to win today because we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Now, that's completely taken this verse out of context. You know, I hope Jesus is going to let you win. I, you know, but at the end of the day, that's not what this verse is talking about. Jesus wants you to be successful, I, I believe, in many areas. But this verse is talking about being content. And so Paul says, I'm in prison, okay? Don't forget this. I'm, I'm in prison here, and I've learned to be content. I've learned the secret. In other words, not everybody gets this. Unless you know Jesus and unless you're tracking with God, not everybody understands this principle. He says, I know 
in whatever situation I find myself to be, I know what it's like and I know the importance and the value of being content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In other words, I've been brought low, my friend. I've been low. You know, he had a physical ailment. We're not quite sure what it was. He talks about this, this thorn in his side that uh, is a physical thing. Some people think it was his eyes. Something was wrong with his sight. But whatever it was, physically he was burdened. So he had some issues there. We know that he was, he was beaten. He was bitten by a snake. He was shipwrecked. Um, you know, for his faith, he was, he was put into prison. And so this guy knew what it felt like to be brought low. But he says, I also know what it's, what it's like to abound. You know, and there, there are times in my life when I had plenty, when I had all that I need, more than I need. And so he's like, I've been on both sides of the coin here. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. In other words, abundance. I've got all that I need materially, physically, relationally. It's all there, man. I've got it all. I know how to be content in those situations. And I've also been hungry. I know what it feels like to be hungry and not have food. Now, most of us in this room won't even know what that's like, but he says, I've been there. He says, I know what it's like to to be in abundance, and I know what it's like to have need. And it's in that context that he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So what he means is, in any situation, whether I can pay all of my bills this month or not, whether my friend got the promotion and I didn't, whether my kids aren't as smart or as talented or whatever from an appearance standpoint as the other kid. No matter what my situation, I don't have the the, the nicest car, I don't have the greatest job, or I have the greatest job, I have a wonderful this and a wonderful that. He says no matter whatever situation you find yourself in today, he says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about being content. No matter what Christ has given to you or not given to you, he calls us to be content. He calls us to to be happy with what God has given to us, knowing that everything that God has given to us is exactly what we need to be able to do everything that he's called us to do today. And so if I can focus on that, then I'll be able to overcome envy. But he gets even more specific We flip and turn back over to John because John's response really gives us some some practical tips on on how to defeat envy and jealousy in our life. And then we'll we'll finish up with why that's even important here. But if you're taking notes, um, in verse 27 and 28, John responds like this. He says, (coughs) this 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 is classic. John's baptizing discussion It all breaks out. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. A person cannot even receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. If you're taking notes, what we have to do to overcome envy in our life is is be able to embrace what we do have and stop focusing on what we don't have. He says, God has given Jesus everything. Like Jesus doesn't have anything that God hasn't first and foremost given to him. And in the same way, God gave that dude a promotion that you're jealous about. God gave that family, you know, whatever it is you're looking at wishing you had. God is the giver of all gifts. Uh, Brant mentioned it in in James chapter one, verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is given from above. So we can begin to control envy and jealousy in our life when we begin to understand the gifts that we 
do have. So many times we focus on what we don't have. They have this. They have that. I don't have that. Why don't I, why don't I have that? I wish I, if I had that, then I'd be able to do this and I'd be able to do that. And as long as I'm focused on what I don't have, I'm never going to be thankful and grateful for what I do have. And as long as I'm, I'm not thankful for what I do have, I'm never going to be able to embrace what God wants me to do today and, and leads me to do today because I'm too busy thinking about and worrying about what he or she is doing and what he or she has and what I don't have. And John says, look, 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 look. Everything that Jesus has was given to him by God. So if you want to be mad at somebody, don't be mad at that person. Just get angry at God and see how that goes for you. That's, a, that's probably not a good recommendation. Here's the second thing that he says in verse 28. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So another avenue here that we want to embrace here is that if we're going to overcome envy in our life, then we want to embrace our calling. If we can embrace our calling today and and realize that God is calling you to do something specific, God calls me to do something specific. God gave John a specific ministry, a calling in his life. And John says, look, I'm not the Messiah. Make no mistake about it. I've already told you this. I'm not the Messiah. I was the preacher that was preparing the way for the Messiah, but I'm not him. My job, my calling was to prepare the way for him. What's your calling? You see, if I can focus on my calling, what God is calling me to do, and if I can, if I can narrow my thought life and my, my energy towards that calling, then I don't have as much energy to focus on what I don't have. I don't have as much energy to think about what other people are doing and saying and get to experience. And, and, and I don't have to focus on them so much as I get to focus on what God is doing in my life. And this is what John is saying. I'm not, I, here's my calling. The Latin word for vocation means to call. And so when we think about our calling, it's, it's our vocation, what God is calling you to do. Now, you may have a job today where you think, this isn't my, my long-term job. This is just kind of paying the bills, preparing me for the next step. But, but for the most part today, as an adult, like, like, are you doing what God has called you to do? And if you're, if you're not, then, then what, what do you need to do to begin to align your career in line with what God is calling you to do. This is huge for us. Some of you are, are empty and, and, and some of you are not fulfilled in life because you haven't embraced God's call upon your life. You're still trying to pick up things and do things on your own instead of doing what God is, is calling you to do and, and asking you to do. And so what, what is God calling you to do? And, and when you figure it out, maybe it's fixed cars. And then, and I'm going to fix cars for the glory of God. Maybe it's, you know, working that, that, that company, that organization, whatever it is, or you're making something, you're, you're manufacturing something, whatever it is. Like, I'm doing this for the glory of God. This is what God has called me to do. And as I serve him in this vocation, I'm, I'm doing it as a, a, a minister of the gospel in this city, in this company. So, so what is God calling you to do? Some of you are teachers and like you're teaching, but, but, but are we teaching and serving in such a way that we're bringing glory to God? This is what he's called me to do. If I can begin to focus my energy and life upon my calling, then it's, it's a lot easier to overcome envy and jealousy and think about the things that I don't have. You see, 
Verse 29, he jumps into the, the illustration of a wedding again. And, and so the wedding, we talked about a few weeks ago, like the wedding is the picture of Jesus and his church being united. And so according to Genesis 2, a, a marriage is between one man and one woman um, for the uh, entirety of their life. They are committed to each other. And so when we look at this, then the, all the illustrations about marriage in the Bible begin to make sense. If you redefine marriage to mean something else, then, then you take it out of what, what God's intention is, and then all the illustrations about it don't make sense either. And so he says here in verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So what he's saying is, we talked about it a few weeks ago from Revelation 22, uh, Revelation 21, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So those who have uh, accepted Christ into their life, Jesus returns, um, the judgment takes place, and then we are united with Jesus forever, the church and the groom Jesus, the bride being the church, his people. We're united and we celebrate. There's a huge feast, there's a, there's a supper, there's a, there's a party, and uh, it's going to be amazing. We can't even really understand how awesome and amazing that's going to be, but that's the time in our life where there's no pain, there's no sin, there's, 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 there's a reunion of every person who has ever believed in Christ before. It's just, this is incredible. We get to do a whole day on that. But the idea is that the groom is Jesus. The bride is the church. And he says, I'm not the groom. I'm like the best man. You know, he says, I'm the one who, who's there enjoying everything. I'm happy for the groom. I'm happy that this has taken place. I was, I was kind of a part of this deal. I've, I, I kind of did my deal as far as, you know, I'm, I'm here and took part and I did what, what he asked me to do. And he says, therefore, my joy is now complete. So here's the deal. So we, we want joy in our life. We want this feeling of being successful in life. And yet we chase all these rabbits in life to try to experience joy. But every time, listen, every time we see make my joy complete or my joy is complete in the Bible, it's in reference to our calling. It's in reference to serving and loving Jesus. And so if I can understand who he is and what he's doing in my life and I can begin to serve him and submit my will to him, then that success, then that happiness begins to unfold in my heart and in my life. John is happy. He, he is not saddened that many people are following Jesus and getting baptized by him. He is he's the exact opposite. He's happy that his ministry is growing. He is happy at what things are, 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 what, what things are happening in the life of Jesus' ministry. And, if, and, and, and so here's the deal. We want to be happy for our family and friends that are successful. By, by parents' sake, you know? We want to be excited when the, when the friend gets a promotion. We want to be excited for them. So if you want to root out envy in your life, you know the number one thing to do? Be happy for them. Pay them compliments, you know? Some of you are like, you got to be kidding. I would never compliment that joker. You know, listen, we're talking about your own heart here. If you want jealousy and envy to grow and, and bitterness in your heart and to take root, it begins a filter for which you make decisions. It begins a filter, becomes a filter and a lens through which you parent. So you, you're parenting out of a wounded heart and out of a prideful and arrogant heart 
to your children, passing that same, um, that, that, that's the, the same misconceptions on to them because everybody else has got stuff and we don't. So we're the victim, you know? So if we want to truly overcome envy, we're happy for those around us that are, are, are successful. And then the final thing here in verse 30, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. So if we truly want to overcome and control envy, we do that by increasing Jesus and decreasing self. Look at verse 30. Very simple. He must increase, but I must decrease. For John, this is not something that should happen. This is something that must happen. We must increase Jesus in our life. We must decrease ourselves in our own life if we're going to grow closer to him. That means in my private life, Jesus must increase. That means, that means in my parenting skills, Jesus must increase. In my marriage, Jesus must increase. In every area of our life, we are looking for and raising up Jesus in our life. He increases. We want more of him, and we want ourself and our own selfish desires to decrease. That's the ultimate way to overcome sin in your life. And as you and I raise that standard and, and raise that worship to Jesus, then our sin begins to die in our life. Colossians 3, 5 puts it like this. If you guys will put that on the screen. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So other, other parts of the Bible talk about sin in our life. And, and, and so when he says, you know, coveting here, that's envy, that's jealousy. It's very, very, very same thing. When we covet, we want what somebody else has and, and we're envious and, and, and jealous of what they have. Now for us, that's like one of the sins we put down on the list that's not that big a deal. You know, murder, didn't murder anybody. You know, adultery, no, I'm good there. But we put coveting and and, and jealousy and envy, like it's down on the list, like it's not as devastating as some of these other things. And, and we have to reverse that train of thought. It's very damaging. All sin is damaging. And so he starts here with, with put to death these sins. So therefore, what is earthly in you? All, all these earthly desires that we have would, would look in our materialistic uh, country and, and world like look, looking at what other people have and wanting what they have and not being satisfied with what we don't. Have So that issue of contentment, and he starts with sexual immorality, and he calls sexual immorality idolatry. So sexual immorality is, is, is sex outside of marriage. Um, sexual idolatry, putting my sexual pleasure above my desire and love for God. I'm going to do what I want to do more than, than follow God's plan and path for my life. So same-sex attraction would be in this sexual immoral um, uh, lifestyle. Therefore, you know, uh, when, we, when we look at some, some sexual sin, we think, okay, this sexual sin is worse than, than another sexual sin. And so some of you are, are constantly viewing pornography on your, on your phone, on your computer, and, and, it, and it's like that, that gets a pass. That sin is not that bad. But, but the Bible would call that sexual immorality, just like same-sex attraction, just like sex before marriage, just like um, uh, all, you know, put it on the docket, it's in the same category. Like this is the type of sin the Bible says put to death. It's 
idolatry. We put that desire to fulfill that desire above our desire to love and serve Jesus, to worship him. So he, he says sexual impurity. It's the same track as sexual immorality. He's talking about a, a sexual impurity, this passion or lust to, to um, involve ourselves in sexual immorality. It's all evil desires here that he's, that he's talking about. And then he throws in coveting. It's like we would never do that if we were writing the Bible, you know? That, I don't even know if coveting would have even made our list. We wouldn't even have thought of that one. We would have put, you know, some of these things, sexual, okay, that's, that's up there, you know. And, and then we would, we would never even think. But, but this is on the same level, in the same category as sexual sin. So, so it's a huge deal. And he, and he says, put it to death. And so, so if, if, if there is sin in my life, um, I want to identify what that is. And so I would encourage you, if, if you don't know like the top 10 sins in your life that you're dealing with, all right, strike that. Let's just go three sins. What are the top three sins in your life that you would say, Trent, boom, boom, and boom. This is what I struggle with. If you don't know what they are, then potentially you've just accepted them into your life. Like it's okay. So here's what I'm saying. Make the list. Trent, number one, this is what I struggle with. This is a battle. This is a struggle. And this is a struggle. When I identify what those struggles are, when I'm honest about that, then I can begin to kill them. And how do I kill them? It's just like, you know, anything else. What are the, the, the roads? What, what's the blood flow that's going to that sin that's keeping it alive? You know, just like our veins are, are taking, you know, um, our arteries are taking blood to vital organs in our life, you know, keeping these organs alive. What, what are the bloodlines that, are, that are, are tracking to that sin? And so when I see, okay, 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 usually pornography happens after my wife goes to bed and I'm all alone, the kids are in bed. So what I want to do is I'm going to kill that road, that, that bloodline, and I'm just going to go to bed when she goes to bed. Or I'm not spiritually mature enough to be able to, you know, be on the internet without having, you know, some filter or some form of, of way to kind of traffic what can be viewed. And so I'm going to kill that line as well. Or, or maybe it's such an issue that I'm really serious about this and I want to put it to death. And so I'm just going to, you know, not have a phone for a season. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, use my computer at home for a season because I want to put it to death. Now, you look at me and you think, that's crazy, that's silly. Well, not really. If you want to put something to death, you've got to cut off the support, the bloodline to that sin, you know? And so we want to get serious about that. And, and, and you see, following Christ, it, it's a spiritual battle. If you don't view yourself in a war today, then, then you're not tracking with the, with the gospel fully, okay? So let's, let's gear up here and realize that we're in a battle. And we're not fighting, the, Ephesians says, it's, it's not a battle against flesh and blood, so I'm not like taking, you know, a sword or a gun and, and making people believe in Jesus as if I could actually do that anyway. But that, that's not the battle he's talking about. He's talking about this battle that is raging within ourselves. It's a, it's a battle against sin. And we've got to, to fight against it. So if, you, if you're not fighting against any sin in your life, chances are you've just become complacent and accepted it as normal in your life. This is huge. We want to understand who Jesus is. And some of us think, I don't know about all that. I don't want, you know, to increase Jesus that much. I'd like to increase Jesus just enough to get heaven. That'll be good for me. I like that part. We don't want Jesus to increase and make us uncomfortable. I don't want that much of Jesus. I, I don't want enough of Jesus that would make me, you know, have to change some of my habits. I don't want that much of Jesus that would, that would cause me to have to change some of the things that I'm doing in my life. 
You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't want that much of Jesus. I just want enough to get heaven. Well, I'm not so sure you can have it both ways. The problem is we live in a culture that is a self-promoting culture. And so we're inundated with this. If we're not careful, it's all we think about. And, and so we're always reading the tabloids and always reading, you'll never guess what happens when this person does this, you know, on Facebook. And it's like, oh, I got to check that out. You know, I got to find out what's going on here. Oh, you know, it's, it's, it's like this devastating headlines and it's ridiculous and we feed off of it. And that's the, that's the energy in our, in our, in our spirit that we're, we're, we're focusing our attention and our energy on. And, and it's a self-promoting, you know, deal. It's what Instagram and Facebook and Twitter is all about. It's about promoting ourself. And so when we look at the gospel, we realize that it's all about promoting Jesus. It's all about increasing him in our life. It's all about increasing his fame. And so we, we distort it. And it's idolatry when we put ourselves in the place of Jesus. So he must increase. We must decrease. What does Jesus must increase even mean? <laughs> How do we do that? Well, very simply, uh, if you're taking notes, I would write this down. To increase Jesus means that what Jesus wants in any given situation must be given priority over what you want. What Jesus wants in any given situation is given priority over what you want. That means what Jesus wants, he gets the priority over what I want. So it's about denying myself and embracing and accepting what Jesus wants in my life. So when it comes to my marriage, when it comes to how I treat people at work, when it comes to how I raise my family, I am, I'm, I'm tracking with Jesus here. Jesus, what do you want in lieu of what I want here? Because our culture and, and just our sin nature desires what we want. And we think that if I get what I want, then I'm going to be you know, happier and, and, and I'm going to get that feeling that I'm after. But as we travel down the self-promoting, selfish road, it always leads to more and more emptiness. And so when we read the Bible and we see where people are having joy made complete in their life, it's all about in, in ministry, in serving their king. And so we want to realize that as I die to sin, I get more happy. As I die to self, I become more successful. And I'm not talking about, oh, God's going to give me the new car and the new this. I'm talking about what true biblical success looks like in our life. We're in a battle. we got to embrace this battle. So why must Jesus increase? He closes out this passage of Scripture from verses 31 to 36 with the why behind why we must follow and increase Jesus in our life. So verse 31, let's read it. He says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So why must Jesus increase? Well, I would just simply say because Jesus is our superior God. Jesus is greater. He is from above and he is above all. You can't get any simpler than that. You can't get any clearer than that because in every situation, Jesus is greater. In every avenue of life, Jesus is better. No matter what you think you're gaining, no matter what greatness you think you're experiencing, it is only temporary because Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than that relationship. If you're a young girl today and you're dating this dude and you think it's so awesome and he's amazing. And here's, here's the deal. Jesus' love 
is greater than that dude. I promise you. Jesus' love is greater than any pain that you bring into the room today. Jesus is greater than any uh, regret or sin that you have in your life today. He is greater to overcome those emotions and feelings and guilt. Jesus is greater than any pain. Jesus is greater than any experience that you've ever been through. Some of you bring doubts into the room about salvation or faith, and, and Jesus is greater than even your doubts. You see, no matter what greatness you think you're experiencing today, it's only a fabrication. It's only a lie. It's only, it only feels great for a moment. But in the end, it leads to death. In the end, it leads to guilt. In the end, it leads to shame. And the quicker you can realize that, that you're walking down a, uh, down a, a fabricated path that's going to lead to destruction And the more you realize that through Jesus, your superior God, through Jesus, because he is greater, the happier you'll be. Now, the verse here ends with, yet no one receives his testimony. Why is that? Well, we talked about it last week, but we love the darkness. We love wickedness. We love evil. We don't love the light naturally. And so God has to break into our life, spiritually speaking, and, 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 and give us the grace to understand and love him and, and know the word and know his, know his truth. And, and so naturally, we don't receive his testimony. We don't receive it into our life. And so I was watching the game last night, and, and so this really uh, helped me you know, kind of think through this because this happens all the time. Um, how many of you guys watched the game last night? Awesome. You stayed up late and you came to church. Way to go. You're awesome. So, so we're watching the game, and, and this happens all the time. But, but Dobbs, the quarterback, he was running into uh, the end zone, and he got tackled right before the line. Remember that play? When he got tackled, he fumbled the ball into the end zone, and South Carolina got it. And as soon as you saw it, if you're a UT fan, you're like, oh, no, we can't get a break. And, and so, so they went to the instant replay to make sure it was a fumble. Now, when you watch the replay as a UT fan, what did you say immediately? That is not a fumble. He was down. And if you're a South Carolina fan, you saw that and you said, oh, that's a fumble. It was out. If you know anything about football, you know that these officials, no matter, no matter how much you hate them or disagree with them, this is their life. They know the rules. They took the play. They go to the replay booth. And so in the little replay booth, wherever the replay booth is, this little happy little you know, place of solace where these referees are, are viewing these plays, they slow-mo until they can come up with the accurate and truthful call. And so they went to the replay and they came back out on the field and they said, after further review, the player was down and he did not fumble. It's UT's ball. And all the UT fans at my house were like, yeah. All the UT fans at the game were like, yeah. And every single South Carolina fan who saw the same replay, who know the rules just like us, saw that and they said, Why? Well, happens in sports all the time. Most of the time, we don't really care about what the right call is. We just want the call to go our way. You know? Now, Tennessee fans, we're not like that. We want the truth, (laughs) right? We want the accuracy. Just kidding. But it happens all the time. We're watching the replay. It's in slow motion. He's obviously down. But we don't care. We just want the call to go our way. Now, the same is true for sin. I don't care really what God says. It feels so good, man. It feels so right. 
you don't know what my wife is doing, man. And so this is all right. I feel like I can, because of what this is going on, I think this is, and we can rationalize because at the end of the day, our natural bent is to not care about what's true and what is right. Our natural bent is just rule in my favor, God. You know? And so when we come to these, these passages of Scripture, where we can't, we can't hide from this put to death sexual, we can't hide from these things. Like if we're a believer, we're going to embrace them. And if we truly want to, you know, allow the Spirit of God to change us as a follower of Christ, then we've got to embrace these difficult truths and, and, and begin to live the truth in our life. Because of our sin, we don't initially accept this testimony. We reject it. And so, so that makes us you know, feel like you know, we are our own God in a sense. And so we, we feel like what we're doing and how, how, how we're living our life is the better way or the greater way. And so we reject the greatness of Jesus in our life. What we find out is that nothing in the world can give us that greater experience that we're searching for. It's all a fabrication. Only Jesus can give us that life. The second point here that he makes in verse 34 is, is that Jesus is sent to us by God. In verse 34, he says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And let's, let's do verse 35 as well. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So God is sending his son, and he is uttering or he is speaking the words of God. And he says in verse 33 that whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So God is true. Jesus is sent from God, and what he says is true. Because what he says is true is the very words of God. So when we receive Jesus, we're identifying with God and saying, we believe in your word. We're believing it is true. And to reject Jesus is to, is to call God a liar. Because God says that he has sent his son and he is speaking the words of the Father. And the Spirit has been given to him. Not just a little bit. Has it just given him a little bit of the Spirit? Jesus is, is, is here embracing the fullness of the Spirit. He is fully God. He's not just a little bit God. He is fully man and he is fully divine. He is fully God. And so Jesus' words are true. And then finally, number four, he says Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to receive eternal life. The only way for you and I to receive eternal life is through Christ. Verse 36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, here's what we see here. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life life. So if Jesus Christ is in your life today, you've received him into your life, there's this idea that you have believed in him. This word believe is a word that we continue to see in the gospel of John because it's so important. There's a believing factor in our faith that we are trusting in the words of Jesus. We are trusting in the word of God and we are placing our faith and believing in him. Then he says, not only those who believe have eternal life, but he says, whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. So there's this concept that, yeah, I'm, I'm believing in Jesus, but I'm also oh, obeying him. So if I'm a believer, I'm believing and I'm obeying. 
And this is the part that, that some people confuse with religion or coming to church. And, and it's this idea that, well, yeah, I believe, and I, I believe, and, 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 and so I, I come to church occasionally, and, and I believe, and, and so my, I'm not obeying him in any way, but I think I believe in him. And I would say, look, if you believe in him, then there's, there's a form of obedience that begins to develop in your life. He says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And the last phrase here is, but the wrath of God remains on him. So that means apart from Christ being in your life, the wrath of God is upon you. That's the whole point of the gospel. That through the cross, Jesus is in fact taking the wrath of God instead of me. And so symbolically here, God, God accepts his punishment and his wrath is poured out on the son on the cross for my sin and for your sin. And by doing that, I don't have to face the wrath of God in hell. And apart from Christ, apart from knowing and believing in him and, and obeying him, we still stand judged. We still stand before God with his wrath. Upon us. I was in Atlanta um, a year or two ago and took the kids to a water park there. And as we were walking around and doing all the slides and all the deal, um, I, Dad needed a break, so he took took an ice cream break. And I uh, was sitting watching kind of the wave pool, and kids were still running around and, and doing their thing. And and uh, saw this deal last for like 20, 30 minutes. I'm going to condense it uh, pretty quickly. But I was watching this mother who began to realize that she had lost her daughter. And so if you're a mom in the room and you know um, how that feels, it, it's, it's kind of a panic that begins to set in. And so she started looking and she just started calling out her daughter's name, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. Kind of in a hurry, but, but, but not yet, you know, full board, like panic mode. But she's calling out for her daughter, Elizabeth. And so she's walking up and down the, the, the wave pool. She's looking. She's, she, she, she begins to grow in intensity and, and grow in panic mode. And she can't find her daughter. Lifeguards are stumming, starting to come and to help her. And, and she's like ignoring everybody. And she's just like knocking people off because she's so zoned in on finding her daughter. And she starts yelling louder and louder. And then her 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 fast walk becomes a jog and, and she begins to jog to the crowd and begins to jog over here and she goes into the water and she's, she, she's frantic at this point until she gets overwhelmed and she stands at the edge of the wave pool and she yelled out the name of her daughter in such a blood curdling from the depths of her being scream that I've never heard a scream like this before and she just yelled out Elizabeth Elizabeth! And it just rang, and like everybody, like 300 people are now just focused on this woman who is panicking, and she can't find her daughter. By this point, officers were, were here, and, and now all lifeguards are here, and, and officials at the, at the actual um, uh, park were there, and, and, and they're all kind of gathered around her, and just like a, you know, a running back busting through the line, she like you know, busts through all of these lifeguards and these people, and she is on a dead sprint to the water, and she sees her daughter, and she falls down, and she picks up her daughter and, and lifts her up and squeezes her and just sobs. 
she just sobs. And like, just like a movie, like 300 people are clapping and cheering and, I mean, ice cream crying. And, and it, just, it just gave me the picture of what I want to be, you know. Because when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to sharing the gospel with men and women in my life who are, are under the wrath of God, and I know the answer like, like I want to get passionate. I want to get, get, get energy to move my life in that direction. And I, and I don't want envy and jealous of what I have and what I don't have to get in the way of that goal. Because at the end of the day, I mean, that is making disciples. That's where it begins, like a desire and a concern to see all men and women in this city and around the world. How can I position my life in such a way that I can lift up the name of Jesus, that I can increase the name of Jesus in this church, in my life, in my family, and allow that to pour out into the streets of Maryville and, and, and overwhelm the streets and the countries of this world who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That should drive us out of bed every day. And the fact that you don't have what so-and-so has or, or you don't get enough of this over here and nobody gives you enough pats on the back is straight from hell to get your mind on what you don't have so that you don't focus on what Jesus has for you and what he wants to do in you. And some of you are wasting your life on petty, ridiculous relationships, on petty, materialistic ambitions that have nothing to do with the gospel and have little value, if any, for your children or your life. And I would, I would challenge you today to let to let these verses resonate in your heart, to accept them as true, that Jesus must increase and you must decrease. A prayer every time I step up here on this stage, Trent, decrease yourself today and increase the name of Jesus. Would you pray with me? I wonder in this room here today, if there would be anyone that would say, Trent, If I were honest with you, I don't know Jesus. I've never given my life to him today, but I want to, and today is that day. Today is that day that I wanna receive him into my life, stop playing around with this deal, and, and, and be serious. Would there, and if there were, there's anyone in this room that would say, Trent, that's me, I just wanna invite you to stand up in your seat right here, right now. Praise God. Anybody that would say, that's me, just stand up, stay, stay up. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and then we're going we're gonna to encourage you and challenge you. Anybody else? Anybody at all? Here's what I want to do. Like, if that's you, don't, don't let, don't let the, the bigness of this room overtake you, because this decision is the decision. And I would just encourage you, like if that's you, to simply pray this prayer. Receive him into your life now. And don't walk out of here and, and pretend like nothing happened. 
I want to encourage you to go to our prayer and care room and, and, and let them know what you've just done. Just simply say this, God, I believe that you love me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. Believe that you rose from the grave. I confess to you that I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins and come into my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Now if you prayed that prayer, you meant that, those of you that stood up, before you leave today, the prayer and care room, hit that place. They're going to they're gonna encourage you. You don't need to take this home as a secret. This needs to be something that becomes public in your life that God uses for his glory and your good. Now here's how I want to close. Some of you here today have a family member. You've got a friend. You've got a coworker that you know doesn't know Jesus today. And I want to invite you to stand up where you're at, if you're willing, to lift them up in prayer this morning. Just stand up in your seat. We're going to pray for them. Who would stand up for a coworker or a friend this morning and pray for them? I've got a family member. I've got a neighbor. I've got a, a close relative that does not know Jesus all over the room. If, you wanna, if you're willing to pray for them this morning, stay on your feet, begin to pray for them right now. Just say, just, just, just ask God to reach into their life and save them. Ask God to use you. Ask that God would, would send them the grace that they need to understand your truth. Ask God to reach down into their life and overwhelm them. Even right now, they may be at home in bed, but God is going to answer your prayer today. We, we believe that. We believe he is hearing us and answering us this morning. Would you pray for their salvation, that God would radically change them, that they would, they would begin to have conversations with you about faith. Now, ask God to use you. Ask God to allow you to be the person that can witness to them, that can share with them, that can encourage them, that you would have the opportunities, that you would have the boldness, and that even that others in this room and around the world would have opportunities for this person. Continue to pray. God, we are standing and lifting up Loved ones, family members, there are moms and dads that are standing on behalf of their son or daughter. There are friends here today that are standing up for one of their best friends. There are sons and daughters standing up for a mom or a dad. God, we pray that in this moment you would hear our prayers in our hearts. Lord, we, we are asking you through the power of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave to save this person that we are lifting up to you this morning. Lord, it is out of our hands completely. It is truly only a work that you can do. You must increase, we must decrease. 
We place it into your hands today, Father. We pray that you would give us the courage, the wisdom, and the energy, Lord, to be the witness, to share the gospel, to encourage others in their faith. Lord, hear our prayer this morning. And we are believing in you to see it happen. And we're trusting in you that you are working. And we pray in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. God bless you guys. We will see you this Friday night at our night of worship. guys.